Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We pray the true and living God will be with us, you, us, everybody here tonight, our uh, streaming audience, our live audience here, and those who will be watching through archives in the days and months and years to come. Listen, if you want to attend Heart of the Matter's live uh, uh, performance, like we have about 20 people in here tonight who are, uh, we welcome you to come. All you gotta do is go to uh, www.hotm.tv and you can see the address of the studio there and look for the signs that say campus, Tuesday nights, be here by 7.30, 7.40 if you want, and uh, join us. It's a fun party, all are invited. Um, hey, listen, are you interested in learning the Word of God verse by verse? We invite you to go to our website at www.campus.com and take advantage of our recorded verse by verse teachings through the Bible. Also, if you live in the Salt Lake City area and don't attend a Bible teaching church, uh, consider joining us on Sundays here either at 10 a.m. for milk and 2.30 p.m. for meat. Listen, this is going to sting a little bit, but going to church... Uh, that does not teach the Bible is like going to the library that doesn't have books or going to a restaurant that doesn't serve food or going to a movie that theater that doesn't have projectors. There's no purpose in it. I mean, the, the purpose is to learn the Word of God. And then there's fellowship, and then there's fun, and then there is uh, the music, and, and all the other things that come along with that. But the primary purpose is to hear what God's word is given through prophets and people over the centuries so we can learn uh, what he has to say. So uh, this is really the bottom line reason. Humans please God, according to Hebrews, by faith. All right? And we have victory over this world by and through faith. And we remain tapped into the vine by faith. And this is the thing. Faith comes by hearing the word. So if all of those things come about by faith, then we want to hear the word so as to be able to accomplish them. Little or no hearing the word, little or no faith. So talk to your pastor about it. If he isn't feeding you the word of God, see if he'll change his mind on that. And if not, uh, find a church that will. I suppose that more and more we're gonna receive emails like this one, which came all the way from the United Kingdom. It's from Greg R. It says, I left the Mormon church after 11 years. I was a convert here in the UK. I hated the whole Mormon temple experience, but as a gay man, why is it you appear to sound quite homophobic at times? It's for this reason I don't attend a Christian church. I think you're fantastic though, Sean. I had to add that in there that he uh, said that. Uh, I wrote the following back to Greg. This is a quote from the email. My brother Greg, I want you to know that the application of the term homophobic is unfair. I would liken it to the LDS who call me anti-Mormon because I challenge their faith. Terms and words and the use of them are important and so I want to explain myself to you as a means to refute your application of the term homophobic to my person and to show you that calling homosexual activity a sin no more makes me homophobic than my saying Mormonism is not Christian uh, makes me anti-Mormon. Now, I wrote, I love homosexual people. I enjoy their company and diversity with which many of them present themselves. We have homosexuals who attend our church services and activities in this ministry. 
And then I add open married homosexuals, by the way. Uh, I didn't marry them, but they uh, have had that ceremony performed. But the fact that I love them and enjoy their company and that they are welcome to any and all functions of Aletheia Ministries in no way can or ever will change the fact that homosexual activities are sinful. Does admitting this biblical fact make me homophobic? No, it makes me a Bible-believing Christian. Now, listen, Greg, is your homosexuality less sinful than my lustful feelings for women? No. Is your homosexuality more sinful than my heterosexual temptations? Again, no. Sin is sin. We all have it. You're not being able to attend a Christian church because the pastor teaches that homosexuality is a sin is like liars not attending because the pastor says lying is a sin and adulterers not attending because the pastor says adultery is a sin. Why do you get a pass on your sinful nature, but adulterers and pedophiles and liars and thieves don't get a pass on theirs? We are all born into sin, Greg, and you have a lot more issues with sin than just your homosexuality. I could care less that you are personally and sexually attracted to men, but I could not possibly care more about your standing in place with God. And for that standing to be in good order, hear me clearly, for that standing to be in good order, you have to admit your sinful nature, whatever it is, to God, receive the offering of his son's shed blood by faith and deal with your damn gayness as a Christian, not as a homosexual trying to change the Christian rules. I am a lustful man. I'm an angry man. I'm a violent man. I still come to church. If you're a gay man, you still come to church. We deal with our sin by and through grace, through faith. And so don't call that my being um, a homophobic. So I, I, I finish it with, um, look, I love you as you are. And as far as I'm concerned, what you are is between you and God. But you have to humble yourself before the king and receive his son as a sinful man and work out the rest with the true and living God over the course of your life. So I, I really think that is the most biblical, reasonable way to understand any sinful problem that anybody has. And because I will call it as it is relative to what the Bible says, doesn't mean I'm homophobic. I'm not phobic of homosexuals. Uh, so I hope that clears that up. In light of the whole homosexual thing and the rest of sin we deal with as human beings, I think it's really, really, really important to remember. Remember this. The world fell into condemnation. All of us who were on this carnival ride, were, we fell in right in with it when we entered it. All right? And... God so loved this fallen world, he gave his only begotten son to save it. And that by looking to him in faith, all, anyone, can escape the condemnation that comes with being on the spinning globe. That's really what it's all about right there, okay? So, hey, we could use your support if you're in a position, and, and always, if God so leads. So, in view of this, check this out.
Our brother John out in Southern California tells us that we need to keep new things popping up on HOTM TV in order for people to return. One thing that we're working on is getting the shows up more quickly. It takes a little bit of a struggle for us, but we're working on that, and we've made some progress in that area. Additionally, we are in the process of putting up eight small segments. You'll see them on the site. And what they do is they answer the most commonly asked questions we receive through emails. So it can be like, how do you talk to the missionaries? And I give a three or four minute uh, off the cuff uh, uh, suggestion. Or what do I do if I'm married to a Latter-day Saint and uh, I'm a Christian? What do I do if, I'm, if we're a Christian LDS family and I'm leaving? How do I handle it with my children? Things like that. How can you trust the Bible? So check it out uh, as we update this stuff and continue to look at the archives as well at www.hotm.tv. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a concept that's tossed around a lot in Christian circles and every, you know, Mormon circles, every, that is not always agreed upon. And the concept is the kingdom of Christ. Some say that it is going to come. The kingdom of Christ is going to ultimately be here. Some say it's already here. I agree with the latter idea. I believe the kingdom of Christ is here. And that means that um, uh, if his kingdom is here, we are not working toward trying to get it here through any kind of political means. And we're not here to try to prepare the earth for it to arrive either by our own salt and light. The kingdom of God, according to scripture, exists in the hearts of believers. And as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. That means the Holy Spirit, that kingdom is established within believers around the globe. Additionally, a belief either in the presence or absence of the kingdom of Christ plays heavily into believers' eschatological stance. Eschatology is the end times, is a study of the end things. And so your eschatological stance is going to be affected by how you uh, see whether the kingdom of God is presently here or is about to come. In the Mormon Christian debate, I think understanding the distinction is essential, as we'll see in just a minute. Now listen, in Paul's epistle to the believers at Coloss, the book of Colossians, he wrote some things that give us insight on the kingdom of Christ and where it is right now. Listen closely as he says, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness, has delivered us, and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The translation has already occurred. We've already moved into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. And then applicable to the LDS uh, teaching too, the Bible says, speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, talking of Christ, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So from that we learn that when you come to belief, you come to faith, 
you have been translated into the kingdom of, Christ, of God's son. You're moved into it, all right? You're a member of it. And from this, we can see that we have been or not going to be, but it's a fact. Now, I want you to really try to get this image in your head that as believers in him, you have and you are a present full member of his kingdom, okay? Uh, what does this look like? What does this mean? I would suggest a couple of things, especially relative to the LDS Christian debate. First, as present members of his kingdom, we are not part of this world, okay? Remember the Mormon Christian debate, if we believe his kingdom is here and we are part of it, Jesus says, we are, it's not part of this world, okay? So he made it clear when he was standing before Pilate and he's having a discussion with him before his brutal death by crucifixion, Jesus plainly said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from here. So we, we know that his kingdom, we are part of it upon believing, and we know that, we, uh, that if we are part of that kingdom, we're not part of the kingdom of this world, all right? Now, if his true believers are present members of the kingdom while on earth, and the kingdom is not of this world, it helps us understand what it means to be a Christian alive here on this earth today, all right? For instance, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, how do you suffer persecution if you're a, a, you know, a law-abiding Christian who, you know, you love the Lord, you believe the Lord, you go to work, you do your job, you're not breaking laws. How are you suffering persecution? The persecution isn't gonna come in this day and age by being whipped and beaten and, and crucified like the, the, like the Romans did to the Christians early on. It's done by being ostracized by someone saying you're a Christian, well, we're not gonna let you come to the party or whatever. And then you would say, well, how would they know I'm a Christian? Because I talk about Christ. What? Yeah, I share him with people, ooh. So this is how the persecution comes. It's not because I'm a Christian and they're beating us. It's the persecution comes when you let people know, hey, I believe in him. Uh, we know that the operations and power of wealth, the machinations of men in high places, retribution, retaliation, how the world operates, that's not part of the kingdom. We just don't operate by those things. Our kingdom is not of this world. Now, anyone who understands Mormonism knows Joseph Smith tried to bring the kingdom of God down to earth in a material sense, okay? And so that's why they have literally celestial rooms in their temples that are material representations of a heavenly kingdom, which is material too in Mormon theology. There's no such thing as immaterial material to Mormons. And so they always are doing materially based uh, kingdom representations in whatever they do. We see this played out in the manner and attitude in which they do things. Everything is done very well in material applications. Uh, but Christ represented something very different. He represented people who were lowly and broken and sinful and, 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 and tired. He didn't represent people in suits and the best apparel and the strongest of men. He represented the weakest of men. 
And he was in his flesh. He looked even weak, according to Isaiah. Uh, so Christianity is founded on principles of ignobility, not nobility, and of weak things of the world, not the strong, failures of the earth, not the successful, humble things of the world, not the proud and haughty. You see? So that's why when we were talking about evangelical Christianity, I have a real problem with castles that are made into cathedrals for churches and just tons of money poured into edifices where people are being strapped to pay for it. What's that about? That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is inside. So places can be toned down. So where the son of man had no place to rest his head, the LDS gush over themselves at their houses and, and, and people up on the hill who have become successful, which is indicative of their righteousness, Book of Mormon uh, themes, but just not true relative to the Bible. Where the true prophet Jesus had no respect in his own country and said a prophet has no honor in his own country, the prophets of Mormondom are, are hailed and regaled as great men in their own towns and in their own countries. And where Jesus eschewed politics to the end, the LDS from the top are steeped in political alliances and in political maneuvering. And I just finished a book on David O. McKay and uh, from, his, uh, from his journals, 60s, just swimming in politics. Uh, Washington politics, here from Salt Lake, controlling things uh, in that area. His kingdom reigns, my friends, in the hearts of those who love and honor and follow him alone and no one else. Try to see through the counterfeit systems of religion, whether they come from the Christian side or the Mormon side, uh, because they uh, are trying to surreptitiously put themselves into the body of Christ through these means to impress men and women. And that is not how God has ever set it up. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we pray for those who are seeking truth, whoever, whatever, wherever they are, that you will reach them with your word, that the things I say which are of my flesh or philosophies that are vain or foolish, let us forget those and rely on you and you alone and your holy word as we understand it by your spirit. We pray for this now in our volunteers and all who are participating in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we are going to embark on our study of five-point Calvinism and how Mormon doctrine is essentially a refutation of it, which in my opinion is one of the reasons why Mormonism is so appealing to thinking people who can't understand a God who likes to create people as kindling for fires of hell. And so Joseph Smith and Mormonism were a direct result, partially at least, of the existence of Calvinism. Um, see, Mormonism offers appealing man-made answers for people who cannot rationally accept Calvin's representation of what the Bible says. This series is gonna take some time, several weeks, and I intend on approaching it with as much biblical ammunition as possible. But here's the deal, and I really hope you'll listen closely tonight as I just give you kind of an assessment, and then next week we'll get into the nuts and bolts of Calvinism and what it is relative to Mormonism. We all have a choice when it comes to the doctrine and theologies with which we will embrace. Uh, some people will argue that they only accept what God has said, you know, and then in the end, if you challenge this, you'll see that 
their stance fails because what they are really claiming is they only accept what they believe God has said, not necessarily what God has said. The import of sound contextual understanding of scripture is vital to preventing private interpretation of scripture. Along the same lines, there are people who will say, I've got to see this written in the Bible before I'm going to believe it. But again, we often find that they only see what they want to see in the Bible and they don't see the whole context of the book, you know, from Genesis to uh, Revelation. That has to be taken in in order to understand what a single passage or a single chapter or a single book or a single testament means. You can't just take one without the other. You have to look at the whole context. I've run into this time and time again with otherwise sound Christians. They have firmly built uh, a, a stance upon religious tradition, and then when actually shown what the Bible says in a contextual way, uh, they shout heresy. You're a heretic. Um, and so it's really interesting. Add into the mix the fact that the Bible, like parables of Jesus, can mean different things to different people on different levels and be right. That 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 plays into dogmatism and it plays into how we are to understand and read the Bible in a contextual way. Let me give you an example, water baptism. Okay, there are people who will say water baptism is not necessary for salvation and they will point to the thief on the cross and they would be right. There are people who would say any real believer devoted to Christ would be baptized in water and they would be right. And then we might have someone say, and, the, and water baptism has to be by immersion. And if you look at Paul's example of what bapti water baptism is symbolic of, that is being buried with Christ and rising to new life, they would be right. But then there is somebody who would come along who's a good Christian and say, I wasn't baptized by immersion. I lived in Nigeria and they didn't have enough water for that. So I had someone sprinkle me and I was born again and they would be right. So all of this stuff, these are just a few examples, and we're just talking about water baptism. You could get somebody who really understands the topic and show you the seven ways the New Testament discusses baptism. One of them is a baptism of trial. One of them is a baptism by mist, the children of Israel uh, receiving the baptism unto Moses on dry ground. It was a baptism of mist. There are all sorts of avenues that we can look at this. And so just on the topic of water baptism, we right now have shown that it's really tough to stand on something. I am convinced that God has allowed for such diversity of thought and expression because there are so many factors that play into fallen men and women trying to learn about holy God. And so with this diverse diversity of the mixed mixture of people, he allows for this leeway on non-essentials, okay? We arrive in the body of Christ with different, different temperaments and intellects and passions and spiritual gifts, and it, we are orbiting around in this vast array, and it becomes very scary for people. So men and women have a tendency as a means to bring order and as a means to control of the masses that look and appear chaotic, but are in God's hand, they bring in dogma and they bring in demands and they say, no, this is how we do it. And we built it, we base it on this premise in the Bible. And therefore, if you come to this church, you must be baptized by immersion on this day of the month and for this, this, and you must wear that and all these other things. 
but we allow them to exist, even thrive, because they help control the labor, they help control uh, people, and they effectively bring masses of diverse thinking under one theological roof, and we think that's successful. All right, so where God has allowed for a vast array of divergent thought to exist in and through a conscientious study of his word, men continue to step in and say, this is how it must be done. This is what you must believe. This is what you must do in order to be pleasing to God. And God's means of bringing up babes in Christ along with mature believers and God's means of bringing up liberals with conservatives and God's means of bringing up people of different perspective worldviews is lost because dogma needs to come in and control the masses. All right. So this being said, there are certainly some core issues that we do dogmatically stand upon. In my opinion, and this list too is negotiable. If you want to add or take away, from, I don't think you can take away from it, but if you want to add to it, feel free. But I think there are some non-negotiable essentials in Christianity. The first one is monotheism, or the belief that there is only one true and living God. That's a must. The deity of Christ, meaning he is God incarnate. So we, while we have monotheism, we also have the belief that Jesus Christ is is deity and he was God incarnate. He was Emmanuel, God meaning God with us. How is there one God? Who is he praying to? He's praying to his father. He was in flesh. Is that, is that still one God? Yeah. Was he God? Yeah. Is that yet God? Yeah. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. So we have the Trinitarian views, which are tough to explain to people who don't have spiritual minds. Nevertheless, we're not going to ignore it if that's what the Bible teaches. So I would suggest that the deity of Christ is certainly one. The gospel, the good news which is articulated in scripture as this, if you didn't know this, this is what the Bible says the good news is, that Jesus died for sin, that he was buried, he was resurrected on the, uh, from the grave on the third day, and then you could add in if you want, and he was seen by, and, and Paul lists 500 people here, all the, all the apostles, and finally us. So that is the good news. That's the gospel right there. People will say all kinds of things about it, but that's it. The, the fourth one is that humankind is saved by grace through faith on him and his finished work. It's not by our own efforts. It's not through our holiness. It's by, by his grace that we are saved. And then there is no other way, the fifth one, the final one, there is no other way to receive forgiveness of sin except through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we don't throw in Buddha. We don't throw in works. We don't throw in rites or rituals. So I would say those are five essentials to Christianity. Now, like I said, virgin birth, some people would throw that in. I believe in the virgin birth, but I'm not sure it's an essential for somebody who's not sure about that when they die, if they go, if they're not saved because they didn't accept the virgin birth. But, you know, the word of God is another one. These are all core Christian tenets, but I'm going to leave it uh, for reasons too big to explain. I'll leave it at the five. Now, in addition to these five core essentials, there are thousands of points of doctrine thousands that can and do serve to divide and get in the way of Christians loving each other as 1 Corinthians 13 describes that love. Long-suffering, patient, kind, all those things. These thousands of doctrines, which are non-essentials, actually come in and have and continue to divide and split and bring people, churches up, marriages up. They have divided people uh, who embrace all the essentials the same. 
So part of the blame lies in that religious men and women, they want to be right about everything, and so they'll fight with each other. But the other part of the problem is clergy, because they'll use those non-essentials to divide up their little piece of the pie and protect it by using the dogmatic stances. I believe uh, Christ, uh, that Christians have actually been, I don't believe, I know, Christians have actually been put to death by Christians for believing in certain non-essential things. Okay, so that is a real heinous presentation to know that we have people who believe in the five here, these people believe in the five here, and these people kill them because they don't believe in the uh, non-essentials that this group believes in. That's scary stuff, you see. So few things are more terrifying to me than to meet another human being who is a zealously fanatic, uh, fanatical on a stance of a non-essential non issue. I mean, that's terrifying. I mean, they become red in the eyes, frothing at the mouth because they wanna talk about Sabbath day or whatever it might be. Now stay with me, I'm almost done. Non-essentials certainly should be discussed and, and, and discerned and debated even, but in my opinion, they ought to be allowed to exist within the hearts and minds of everybody in any way they want as long as those essentials are in place. For this reason, I have to begin by saying we give a pass completely to somebody who's a five-point Calvinist, to somebody who's an Arminianist, to a pre-trib or post-trib or amillennialist, to a preterist. All of those things are not essentials to the core issues of Christianity. And so when we make them that way, so I am not presenting my, my uh, study on Calvinism as a means to divide and say, you know, Calvinists should be kicked out of churches. Not at all. It's just one of the non-essential belief systems out there that we're going to explore. But when it comes to Mormonism, we have to admit and see that they fail on all but one of those essentials, okay? Mormonism fails on monotheism. We, if you're a true believing Latter-day Saint, monotheism does not carry water. They fail on the deity of Christ, him being God, because they say he was a created being with a beginning. And uh, so that throws the, the him being a deity out the window. The only one that they agree upon is that he lived, he died, was buried, and resurrected on the third day. Okay, and we call that the gospel in Christianity, but they fail even in the term of the application of the term the gospel because they say that the gospel is Mormonism and Mormonism encompasses a whole lot more than Jesus living, dying, buried, and rising on the third day. So uh, they even fail on the one that they sort of succeed in. And then they also differ on soteriology, which is a big word for how we are saved. That You know that they differ on that one. And then they also uh, uh, differ when it comes to um, Jesus being the only way. And this is why I say this. Because not only their temple uh, rituals are necessary for exaltation, but even to enter into the kingdom, which they say is salvation, is you are required to have LDS baptism in order to do that. That adds on to Jesus being the only way into heaven. And so they differ on four strongly of what the core essentials of Christianity are, and even five if you really look at it. So my point is, here's the deal. Let's say for argument's sake that Mormonism decided tomorrow to embrace fully the five essentials of Christianity that we talked about. If they did, we ought to also embrace them into the body of Christ. 
with all their variant and strange things that they that do and even believe in, as long as those core essentials are in place. When we argue all the extra stuff, it's just, just because that extra stuff points to their failure in the core essentials. But nevertheless, if they were to say, we do accept these five points, they would be no different as a sect in Christianity than five-point Calvinists, in my opinion. Their, their idea of who God is and, and everything else would be absolutely no more strange to me than what five-point Calvinists believe. So that's why I went through all that. So why even address five-point Calvinism relative to Mormonism? When Joseph Smith was growing up, he lived in a place called the Burned Over District in New York. In that area, the churches supposedly were fighting, and it's historical fact, there was a burned over district where the churches did fight. And Calvinism was certainly a part of that debate. Does man have free will? Now, free will, freedom of choice, free agency is huge in Mormonism. Well, Calvinists and, and Arminius will fight with each other. Does man have free will? So Joseph, as a young man, heard these things from his parents, from seeing the, the uh, uh, tent revivals that were going on. He l watched all this, and he said, okay, I do not agree with five-point Calvinism. I am going to construct a new, a new religion a new belief system. And with Oliver Cowdery and Sidney Brigden and his own intelligence and imagination and masonry and all sorts of factors, I have always thought Joseph Smith is the greatest religious synthesizer to ever walk the face of this earth. He could pluck and pull from anywhere and bring it into a full religious belief. And he pulled from that and he created something that was uh, uh, suitable to people who were repulsed by the uh, tenets of Calvinism. This is important. Instead of responding to five-point Calvinism with the Bible, remember, instead of responding to five-point Calvinism with the Bible, Smith took the liberty of producing his own rational and reasonable faith through unbiblical responses. And, um, and that made sense to those turned off by Calvinism but wanted, but wanting something to connect them to God, all right? So I get this uh, in the face of five-point Calvinism uh, because in the face of five-point Calvinism, I, too, wonder what is better, what, what is out there that can answer the questions that the Calvinists bring forward as truth. There's got to be another way to see this than the five-point Calvinism's view because it's so heinous to me when I read about it that I don't relate to that God. The Mormon people, too, were like, what? You mean he actually, this God who, who John says is love, he actually creates people to burn in hell forever and ever and ever and is happy about that? before they ever, ever exist. He has created them for hell and that's his good pleasure. You actually believe that? Joseph comes along and said, there's no way. God loves everybody. He's our heavenly father. Well, that makes more sense to me. And so we see how Calvinism influenced the formation of Mormonism from the get-go. Okay, so he gave them an alternative in our coverage of Calvinism, it is my hope to provide to the LDS and even Christians who are searching a biblical, a biblical 
alternative, which will help them abandon the philosophies of man of Mormonism, but at the same time, love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind, and lean on him for their salvation. Hang on to your hats, folks. The sea's gonna get choppy on this one. We're gonna go to Kevin in Jacksonville, Florida on line one. Kevin, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Kevin, what's up? Yeah, I just wanted to congratulate you and uh, say that um, uh, I think the Lord's with you and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Kevin. Any comment or question for the audience? Yeah, uh, just, uh, I just wanted to uh, get in touch with you and let you know that you're doing well. And um, hey, I'm a uh, one-time resident of Huntington Beach, and um, I don't think we uh, came across each other, but it was um, from 69 to 1971. I don't think the <laughs> you remember that far back. Were you ever in jail in 71? Pardon me? Were you ever in jail in 71? Oh, no, 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 no. I was in, uh, this bigger. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, thanks for watching, Kev. Share the show with your friends. Let's keep it going. I sure will. All right, my sure brother. God bless you. Bye-bye. Okay, we have on line two, Tom, Tom Box. Tom, he's online too. Tom, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, I have a question. Yes. Uh, why is it more loving of a God to create a world where he knows that a vast majority of the creatures that he made are going to go to hell, but he has no power over whether they do or not, but he still made a hell for him to go to? Um, why is that more loving or a better kind of God you're looking at versus a God that is sovereign. And well, I'm not saying God isn't sovereign, Tom. You, that, you've put that in, in, I think, through his sovereignty, he will redeem all men. Uh, He's not we, redeeming all of them because a bunch go to hell, unless you're a universalist. And hell gives up her dead, Tom. Are you a universalist? No. Hell gives up her dead. Universalism teaches that there are no uh, ways to God always lead to God. I am far from being a universalist. Jesus is the only way. I believe in a hell. I believe in a lake of fire. But I believe in a God who uh, will bring people through whatever is necessary to achieve his ultimate will. And as a loving God, he gives people the choice. He gives people the right to but choose. He leaves it up to people with all of their... Some people are born in terrible conditions. They're not that smart. And he takes that people into consideration. That he leaves it all up to them, whether they're going to consign themselves to hell or not, and that's better. He takes that into consideration upon judgment, doesn't he? And he allows it to happen, that, that, that so many of them go to hell because okay, they weren't well, he able to be a despot. program. They he weren't could... able to be spiritual enough to choose him. No, no, no. If they go to hell, remember Jesus said some parts of hell there are few stripes, and other parts there are many stripes. So we know that hell has levels, don't we? So it's not so bad for some of them? Well, that's what Jesus inferred. I didn't. And we also know that hell gives up her dead, Tom. And that's when uh, everybody stands before the great white throne and is judged to see if their name's in the books or not. And we know that every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ, Tom. Now, let me offset what you're saying to me with what you believe, which is that God sovereignly creates men and women to burn in hell. 
that that is his sovereignty, that he has them and he lets them live here, but it's his joy to have them burn in hell while his other chosen ones get to live in bliss. And he knew that before creating one single person. If you want to follow that God, have at it, but not me. Well, you're saying that then they go to hell and he has no control over it. He just lets them go to hell. Oh, no, he has control over all things. He's sovereign, Tom. Including the ones who go to hell? Absolutely. He is in well, hell. He according, to according to David, he is in hell. According to Revelation 20, uh, Tom, do you know where the lake of fire is that hell and death are cast into? Do you know, Tom? Tell me. They're in the presence of the Lord. Did you know I that it says that, way, the that, that the lake of sure. fire, that the lake of fire, where hell is, the occupants are thrown into, it burns in the presence of the Lord and his holy angels. Now, listen to me. The only way that we can view that is either the Lord is doing that for a purpose or he is enjoying the hell out of those guys frying. If you want to believe he's enjoying it while they're in his presence burning, go ahead. I don't. I believe in John that says God is love. Well, I know you believe in what you want to believe in. It's no, I believe in the Bible, Tom, it. and I, I think just, in I terms of weighing, hey, Tom, in terms of weighing this out with what the Bible says, I think I have presented far more weighty matter than you have. All you've given me is your logic. Give me some scriptures, Tom. We're done. Okay. Sorry, it's a very tender subject, uh, and I know Tom. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, email writer, ever wonder why so many enemies fight against the LDS church? Could it be because it's true, Sean? Uh, and so I sat down in the car just a minute ago and I wrote some notes to myself. Mormonism set itself up as something to be abused from the get-go. Uh, way back in Joseph Smith's day, God said all church uh, creeds are an abomination according to Joseph Smith. He comes out, if we're going to believe their history, he comes out of the woods and he tells everybody, this isn't what happened, but their revised church history says, hey, your, your creeds are all an abomination to God. You know, so he sets himself up, Joseph Smith, that God would restore the truth to the earth through him and the Mormons. The Mormons, uh, then mocked Christian pastors in their temple ceremonies that Joseph uh, instituted in Nauvoo. They had Christian pastors who were in the employment of Satan in their temple ceremonies. LDS leadership has constantly mocked Christianity for its ignorance of, of spiritual truths and its uh, misunderstandings of the Bible. And it has mocked the Bible from the beginning. So it has done all of those things along the way. Early church was rife uh, with a fraud and counterfeiting. And so the people could see the Mormons under Joseph Smith's leadership, they were counterfeiting money and they were trying to get people into their scams. I'm not making this up. Go to utlm.org if you want to read the facts about it. Okay, and then Mormonism in the early church, uh, they took over everywhere they went. They took over the commerce, they took over and you, could, you either conformed or you were cast out. And so they threatened people who in an early American setting were terrified of tyranny. And they did not want a despot to come in, a religious despot in particular, like the Church of England, from where they left to come into America and take over. And Joseph Smith uh, uh, presented those very things. Uh, they were arrogant in their faith. 
They held secret meetings and secret temples and performed secret polygamous marriages with converts' daughters who came from overseas. You don't see a reason why people have picked on Mormonism from the get-go? They hold themselves up as better by avoiding common drinks like tea and coffee and stand aloof as though they, have, uh, they are somehow superior in God's eyes because they don't drink those two common uh, elixirs. And they gullibly perpetuate a myth so insane it's hard to fathom. And now, and so, so plays come out like the Book of Mormon in New York to mock the gullibility of them. And, but, but they go around and they have missionaries tell people that Joseph Smith had golden plates that he dug out of a hill as a treasure seeker and converted it into a book that is more important than the Bible. And you wonder why people pick on them. You know, so, but the worst part of it is now they call themselves Christian. And now we don't have the right to then attack and say, wait a minute, you call yourself a Christian. If they wanna say, I'm a Mormon, I believe in Joseph Smith, golden plates, Bible sucks, temple uh, stuff is necessary, yada, 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 yada. Say, have at it, man, party on. Just like the Buddhists, the Hindus, Muslims, do what you want, it's okay. Freedom, God will work with you, go ahead. But when they step in the arena and say, we are Christian, as a means to then influence Americans and Christianity and American politics especially is why they do it. Uh, that really incenses uh, me. So the fact that they're picked on, does it mean they're true? Not, not in the least, not in the least. Okay, uh, if the operators are taking the call, Rayleigh from Toronto, do you believe the brethren at the top of Mormon leadership know the truth about the church? And if so, why do they remain active faithful members? So Grant Palmer, if you go online and you type in Grant Palmer and you write in 70, Grant Palmer 70 interview if you want or meetings, you'll find in a Google search that Grant Palmer who wrote Insider's View of Mormon Origin, a faithful LDS seminary teacher, educated, great writer, a friend of mine, he has been meeting with guys at the top and one of them's in the quorum of the first 70 and Grant uh, is impeccable in his integrity. And Grant says that a mission president and this Quorum of the 70 guy have come to his home and they've said to him, we want to learn from you. And so Grant gets to talking with this member of the first Quorum of the 70 up there at the high, and he says, none of them believe it. He says it takes a couple of years for the apostles to find, all the apostles to finally get it. He said it took Uchtdorf the longest because he was a foreigner and he wasn't exposed to American Mormonism. But he says they don't believe it at all. They know the history is not true. He says that they are so tapped into it that they believe it is the best system of religion out there and that they are paid to be, when they reach that level, they are paid so much money to be there that it's almost impossible. It's like golden handcuffs in religion and they just don't ever abdicate the throne and come out and speak the truth. The, the price is too high. It's one thing that's unique about human beings is our ability to delude ourselves as a means to protect ourselves. We will delude ourselves through almost any means in order to keep our way of life secure and our ideologies in place and our belief system without confrontation. And this is why religion and religious practices proliferate and there are con men and women who are able to take advantage of that. All you gotta read is Eric Hoffer's book, The True Believer, and you can see the mass uh, mindset of people who move through these courses. So these, this delusion is manifested all over the map. Top government officials, you know, if you read, oh, what was the book? Uh, Richard Wright. 
Oh, this is about communism. Uh, uh, the, God that, the, the God that failed. You read that, the people in communism fully supporting up at the top and deluding themselves to the people starving below their feet, thinking that they were doing the noble thing. So it doesn't really matter. Humans delude themselves with information so as, as an ability to live with ourselves, okay? This is why radicals and their thinking are so dangerous to institutions like governments and religions and corporations because radicals do not fear the ramifications of exposing truth. And, and so they go and they say, I don't care that you're gonna crucify me, Sanhedrin. I am gonna share the truth. You guys are a bunch of vipers. Bang, 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 bang. Ah, uh, there he was. You know, and it happens all the time because the radicals, they say, I've got nothing to fear. I want truth. And that's why the Christian church is filled with radicals who say, don't give me your BS about religion. I want truth. And they come to know Jesus as a true and living God. Well, in Mormonism, the LDS leaders, they have eaten, they have breathed Mormonism, cradle to grave in, in most cases. They have paid their tithes. Their children have served missions. They have been mission presidents. They have been speeches. People stand up when they enter the room. They've been paid handsomely. They're successful, and they get to be an apostle. They're up at the top, and they learn it's not true. What would they do? What most people do. They delude themselves and carry on. They perpetuate the myth, probably deluding themselves that what they do is virtuous, when in reality, it is probably one of the most diabolical things imaginable. One final point on this. Grant Palmer said, listen, they know the truth up at the top. And this guy says, yeah, they know the truth. And, and Grant says, weren't some of them involved in making sure that there was a church court held on me for writing a book that exposed the truth about Mormonism? And the guy says, yeah, they were involved. And Grant says, they knew the truth, but they held a court on me for revealing the truth? And the guy said, yeah. And Grant said, that's evil. And the, first, uh, the member of the first quorum of the 70s said, that's right. Think about that stuff. Scary stuff. Chuck P., let's be real, okay, when I look around at LDS people who are active and faithful and compare them with their families, with tip, uh, compare their families with typical Christians who are active in Christianity, I see them as being very much alike in terms of character, love, and, and willingness to serve the community. When I look at less active LDS people and compare them to less devout Christians, I see people who are very much alike. And when I see disgruntled Mormons and disgruntled Christians, they are both uh, uh, the bottom of the pond, okay? So is it, it all about individuals and how we choose to live? I would say yeah, in many ways. I have always maintained that there are individual uh, LDS people who are far better Christians than I have ever been or will ever be. And in terms of dying, they will probably go straight to heaven by their faith in Christ far better than I will. I don't believe that the institution itself will prohibit somebody from going to heaven, but the institution is absolutely wrong. And it does everything it can to hinder people from having that relationship. But nevertheless, people are people. And we do, like I, we talked about earlier, you're going to kind of decide where you're going to believe and what you're going to do. We had a call from Tom just a minute ago. And he, he wants to believe in a God. And I'm sorry, this is harsh. I'm not fighting with the brothers, but we are dissecting it. He wants to believe in a God who thinks it is great. It's part of his sovereign plan for the majority 
the majority of his creations to burn in hell forever and ever. Literal burning in hell forever and ever, while a few escape it by him picking them out and bringing them up to heaven and not nobody else. That's Tom's theology. You see, and all you got to do is read the Bible contextually again, beginning to end and really study it. And you'll get around from the philosophies of men who, like Calvin, uh, came in and tried to sway them. So uh, I think that's one important point regarding Chuck P's uh, question. But here's the thing. The question I would ask if we take the two, ver the very best LDS families and their de de devotion and we take the very best LDS uh, Christian families and their devotion, I would ask where's their devotion? And you will find that the LDS families, if they are good LDS families, their devotions to the church, to the prophet, to the Book of Mormon, to the Pearl of Great Price, to their temple covenants. Their devotion is to an institution and to uh, ideologies that ha they have accepted in terms of religion. But the Christian, the very best, if we're talking about the very best Christian families, they're void of religion. They, their relationship is with Christ directly, only him. There is the difference between the two. Are there other systems out there that are good and can raise up families that are nice and holy? Sure, the military can do a great job. If you have a father and mother who are dedicated to the principles of military life, they can raise children up who are stalwart, educated, and, and function well in society. The military does a good job at that. My wife is a military brat, and her brothers and sisters and her mom and dad raised a fine family. So you can do, have other systems that will do it too. But bottom line, that's not what makes or breaks a person's eternal life. What makes or breaks a person's eternal life is do they have their allegiance to Christ and only Christ? And the LDS are gonna be sorely surprised. I don't know if God will say you go to hell because you believed in all that hocus pocus in addition to believing me, but I do believe they're gonna be sorely disappointed when it comes to rewards or crowns or mansions. And I do believe that the Christians who humbly bore through being a Christian and just trusting in Christ and no institution are gonna be rewarded in way, especially the unseen ones. Guys on TV and stuff, we're gonna be at the back of the line. But those unseen people who work quietly for Christ and suffer for Christ and do his work, those people, compared to people who are saved by institutions, their crowns, I can't even imagine what God has in store for them. Listen, one last thing. We're going to wrap it up tonight. Uh, there's a great article. Uh, how much time do we have left, D? Oh, five minutes. I might be able to cover it. We've long claimed that there, the very spirit of the founder of Mormonism, uh, Joseph Smith, continues on in Mormonism today. And we've talked about this on the show over time. There's a great article by Helen Rab, uh, Rad... I want to say Rabke. Radke... Helen Radke, October 1st, 2013, talks about polygamy, and we're going to cover what she says next week. But let me give you some examples of, of what has happened in modern Mormonism that reflects what Joseph Smith has introduced. First of all, I mean, some of them you're going to say, oh, that's cheesy, but Joseph Smith was a treasure seeker, and he uh, was a recipient of gold plates, and uh, the driving force behind Mormonism today is the same material. It's, it's gold. 
It's alchemy. It's changing people's devotion into gold. That's what it's all about. And so we have that same principle there. Joseph Smith, a little 14-year-old guy out there trying to find gold, the Mormons are still searching for it in every single member's pocket. All right, Joseph was a convicted con man. Utah stands along the highest ranks in the U.S. for business fraud. There are two uh, uh, SEC offices or fraud offices for the FBI in this state. Two. New York only has one. There are two here because of the fraud and con that goes on. Smith instituted Masonic um, rites that included, from Smith all the way down to my day, slitting your own throat. And Lafferty brothers, they went in, they took their sister-in-law, slit her throat. They went and took that little baby in a crib, slit its throat, all in the name of religion all in the name of her resisting polygamy, which Joseph Smith also instituted. Smith was a forger. One of the greatest forging stories in, in modern uh, history came from Mark Hoffman and his salamander stuff that he perpetrated upon the church and the church fell into it. They fell into their own forgery con. And it's the stuff, the spirit, the zeitgeist of Smith lives on in the people today. And Smith took extra wives, starting with a 14, 15-year-old girl named Fanny Alger as his first wife. And then we have David Mitchell goes up with uh, Wanda Barzi, his, his, his wife. And they take little Elizabeth Smart, 14, 15-year-old, and behind the hills of her house, he makes her his wife too. It goes on and on from the apple from the tree falls that apple and it's very close to the original uh, plant. So keep that stuff in mind, you guys. Open your hearts and mind to truth and truth only. Go to God and say, I want truth. If McCraney's lying, prove it. Prove me wrong. Go and do research, www.utlm.org. Look at the church history. Life is too important. And let me tell you something, when you come to know the truth, you become free. You become free in him, and with him as your king, you cannot go wrong. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.